Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Try Love, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about people we saw or movies we... Ah, people we saw are movies we met. How about that? At the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and Trilon.org, where you can purchase tickets to showings, find recommendations for other movies to watch, buy merch, and join the club. Lots of other cool ways to support the Trilon. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. I want to see the world, and you can find me at Nintendoofus. Who is that guy? It's Cody Narvison, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm having ego problems. I have to be worshipped and adored. I'm Harry Mackin. You can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. And today we are very, very pleased to be joined once again by special guest and from the Pylon volunteer. Yes, everybody ring him in. It's Benjamin Savard. Ring-a-ding. Hello, everybody. You you want to see my nightstick? Oh, just opening. Maybe the most upsetting scene in the the whole movie (laughs) right off the bat. I love it. Greatly well, on brand. If I, I, if I can't, uh, you know, make fun of and impersonate the transphobic cops that were the New York City Police Department in 1980s through today. Today, woohoo! Yeah, yeah. So as as uh, as I was introduced, I am Ben Savard, uh, Trilon alumnus, the prodigal volunteer. Hopefully, someday to return. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at at it Benjamin Scott. And I'm Excellent. so excited to be here, guys. Thank you so much for having me back. Yeah, thank, thank you. you for coming back. Uh, this is one that we were going to be covering in our William Friedkin series from a couple of months ago. I say, realizing it was probably more like five or six months ago now. Who even knows, dude? Oh, good Lord. Um, we were all big fans of Friedkin's work. I was new to him, I thought. Uh, and today we're going to be discussing the 1980 film Cruising. We wanted to make sure we got Ben on this one. I think it was one you requested to be on, actually. Indeed uh, it so- was. Uh, you'll notice that our resident uh, Squidward voice, uh, Aaron, is missing from this episode, but I think Harry has so graciously <laughs> offered to step in and uh, give us a quick uh, patented Mackin summary. I can't believe you did your boy like that just now. <laughs> that was brutal. There has to be some way to know whether or not he listened to this episode is the thing. Yeah, that we'll know for sure. And fingerprint. Uh, yeah, so um, my summary that I did not prepare because I forgot that our favorite summarizer was not going to be on this episode until very recently um, is basically that there is in the um, New York S&M gay nightclub scene in 1980, there is a serial killer who is um, uh, cruising and killing gay men um, after he um, picks them up and takes them to hotels or the park. Um, In order to track this guy down, uh, the New York City Police Department um, brings in a rookie cop uh, played by Al Pacino by the name of Steve Burns to go undercover into the nightclub scene and um, hopefully find this guy and bring him to justice and things um, take off from there. Wonderful. Uh, So in true Friedkin 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 fashion, 
Uh, we're going to go and give our top level thoughts about the movie, starting with me, then uh, Cody, Harry, then Ben. Uh, I really enjoyed this. Well, enjoyed is a weird word to use to describe what you do with this movie. But um, I was, I don't even know, how, pleasantly surprised, I guess. Um, it obviously is a movie that I am constantly fraught about even like voicing thoughts and opinions about because it is part of such a specific time and a specific culture and subculture of uh, 1980s New York. Um, to call it like, I saw some other, some reviews and some people calling it sleazy and sleazier than other Friedkin films. I think that's obviously fraught phrasing, but, um, I think it's definitely a more paranoid look at its subject matter than a lot of other Friedkin movies we watched. And that is saying something, uh, because Friedkin's, uh, protagonists are always very paranoid, uh, strange people. But, um, I like how it ties these concepts of performance, uh, especially in the, in the very specific time frame that it's, uh, depicting and, and specifically threats to that performance, sometimes lethal, uh, in coming from every direction, uh, both internally and externally, um, through, you know, personality and, uh, the ideation of self and, uh, societal pressures and systems that support them, um, to the overall narrative of, you know, a, a murder mystery, I guess it, it kind of drops that, uh, sort of colorful framing halfway through the movie. I, I don't know. I, I really, I was uh, tied to my seat. It is wildly tense. Um, I, it's not, it, it echoes, I think a lot of what we've seen with the other uh, Friedkin films we, we watched, but it is not super like it's, it's, it feels darker maybe. And again, maybe that's a fraught way of me for me uh, to, to, I guess to connote that. Um, but I should probably get uh, off the stage now and let Cody take away his thoughts before we start amalgamating them. I'm walking on to, to the stage. Um, thank you uh, for that segue, Jason. Yeah. I'm, I'm also glad we got to jump back to Friedkin for a week here. This was, um, as it's been said, it's one we skipped over this past winter during our uh, Friedkin Friedkin slate. Uh, I don't know what we actually called it, but I'm quite happy we got to circle back to this movie. Um, in our previous Friedkin episodes, we talked a lot about the like the grittiness and the texture of his movies. And that was kind of the first thing I latched onto with Cruising that sort of took me back to those other films, um, the creaking of floorboards, the the stretching and squeaking of leather uh, in this movie's case, uh, even things as simple as footsteps or like the wind hitting leaves on a tree. And then you get texture from uh, other scenes, um, you know, the times in which we just sit watching spaces, uh, you know, like how Doyle in the French connection, we followed him around on a few different stakeouts. We follow Burns around on at least one stakeout here. Uh, and then there are other scenes where he's just taking in the atmosphere of a bar and looking at a, a, a slew of tremendous back muscles. Uh, and so then we too are serving all of this in a, in a new location for like f what felt like five minute stretches. Uh, that's like the really practical world building that I'm always a fan of. Uh, Friedkin does that shit super well, and I'm glad he did it here too. Uh, I like how cruising flowed. Um, it, I guess without being terribly concrete, it just felt like it had a, like a similar focus on its subject, that French connection and sorcerer. And even to live in, excuse me, even to live and die in LA, um, like it had, uh, there were some threads though that I thought got picked up and dropped at weird times. Uh, the Ted Bailey character came off that way to me. Um, Karen Allen's character as well. I love Karen Allen. I'm glad she was in this movie and I like what her presence does within the arc of Pacino's character. But at the same time, it felt like she was present for maybe the bare minimum amount of screen time, uh, which is a, a bummer, uh, I guess. And then the Captain Edelson character was good and, and even fun sometimes, but the movie seems to suggest by the end that he and Burns have this rapport that I didn't quite think was there. Um, but I, I say all of these and add a big asterisk because 
the film apparently did undergo massive edits when the MPAA originally deemed it to be rated X. And I don't know if there were other hasty cuts made along the way. Um, judging by some scenes, it, it seems like there easily could have been some pieces missing because of that. Um, but I don't really know for sure. Uh, but yeah, I, like I said, I'm, I'm real happy we ended up getting to we got to discuss this movie we're doing it right now um i don't know if this quite usurps the french connection uh for me i think that was probably my favorite from that series but including cruising i've really liked every friedkin flick uh we've done an episode for uh so with that i will kick it over to harry hey thanks cody um this is as Jason said, sort of a fraught movie to talk about, right? Because uh, contemporaneously, it was not well received. In fact, um, many uh, advocacy groups, including some LGBT advocacy groups, uh, found it homophobic. Um, it inspired some uh, very fraught killings, um, according to the killers themselves, uh, who were homophobic and, um, I believe, um, attacked uh, gay people and, and gave this movie as its reasoning. Um, it's sort of a shame that we have to talk about those things. And I think that might've contributed to why uh, we avoided this movie in the first place. Um, but I think it's important to talk about it. Um, that being said, I wanted to put a big disclaimer right up top, uh, at least for my own comments, right? Um, I'm not a queer person. And so like anything I have to say should not be considered authoritative in any capacity. I'm only stating my opinions. And if you disagree with them and you find this movie um, homophobic or uh, transphobic or um, objectionable, uh, that is right, like completely valid. Um, all of that was to set up to say that I didn't find this movie homophobic. In fact, I, I found its utilization of the SM community really um, nuanced, um, compelling, and um, empathetic, in fact. Um, to the to the point where I think it's it's deeply essential to what the movie is doing and to the anger that this movie is expressing. Um, I also found this movie uh, deeply engaged with Friedkin's sort of overarching um, criticisms of the police state and of systems of exploitation and oppression that are at work within America. Once um, once again, William Friedkin said, "Fuck cops." Yeah, I mean, like I think this movie is as angry as "To Live and Die in L.A.," which is one of the angriest movies I've ever seen. Um, and I, I really think that this movie is special for that, especially for 1980. Um, and at, at the risk of, of sort of overstating my position, because I'm of course ignorant as all listeners must know, uh, by now, um, I wonder if the, if the contemporary audience was perhaps not ready for a movie like this, um, given that the criticisms seem to conflate, first of all, just um, homosexuality and the homosexual like lifestyle with the S&M community, which Friedkin rightfully points out are, are very different. Like S&M is a very specific subculture within the homosexual culture that, that is doing something completely different and thinking about sexuality and the power dynamic they're in, in a very different way. Um, and to conflate homosexuality in the S&M community is, is um, about as egregious as conflating uh, specific subcultures within uh the queer community with others with any other right like it's it's the same thing as saying I, and anyway i'm uh i'm rambling a little bit um but but all of that is to say i found this movie um very complete and very succinct and very nuanced in its message and um thrilling in the way that it depicted that message and so i i found it on par with Friedkin's other works. And so I was very surprised to see the reaction that it had. And I'm interested, I guess, in unpacking what 
that means, right? The fact that this was received so much worse than many of other Friedkin's movies and the fact that it was considered sort of a minor work. Um, it, that, that is all very interesting to me, as is the message itself, I guess. But I want to turn it over to Ben and see what he had to say about this movie. As the podcasts, I believe, please somebody correct me if I'm wrong, um, inexperienced bisexual, let me be the expert here. <laughs> um, no, I, so uh, over overview thoughts. Um, I thought this movie was better than I thought it was going to be. So I will say I have not been uh, following along with the Freakin' Freakin' series. Um, unfortunately, during the actual uh, Freakin' series at the Trilon, I was no longer living in Minnesota and uh, have been busy doing a mix of other things, mainly just being depressed and alone during this pandemic. So I haven't been, uh, I haven't seen The French Connection, nor To Live and Die in L.A., uh, nor Sorcerer, despite those all being movies that I hope to see someday. So the, the only kind of like freaking movie I can compare this to is The Exorcist, which is a different movie. I'm super, um, this is a super interesting oh, yeah. perspective for me because like this movie, it, it lives and dies, no pun intended, so much within the like Friedkin um, like ideology that like this is, that's a perfect perspective. I'm super excited. Sorry, go ahead. Well, then uh, I will say this movie was um, not just better than I thought it would be, but also a little less problematic than I thought it would be. Um well, I should say, before we get into that side of things, this movie is just, it's a vibe. And it is a vibe that I was in the mood for and and felt good about watching, which, again, is a weird thing to say about a movie that is graphically violent at many points in time and is uh, rather gritty, I would say, in the way that it is depicting both New York City as a place, these underground clubs, uh, and, of course, the <laughs> both the cops and the murderer. Um, but I will say it was just so thoughtfully uh shot and thoughtfully like um stitched together i think it was cody who said that the the movie flowed in a certain way or maybe i'm putting words in your mouth and that's fine because i think you were going for roughly the same thing to say that uh it just like it moved along in a way that was just like enjoyable to be along for the ride uh, watching it, and I know it's weird to say enjoyable, but I will I will stand by it. This was an enjoyable movie to watch. Um, so I will say the not my first introduction to this movie, but the most uh, inter engagement I had had with this movie before watching it was watching the Celluloid Closet, which is a, a documentary from 1999, which was shown at the Trilon um, during last not last June because that would have been 2020 June of 2019. Um, which is a documentary about the depiction of homosexuality in Hollywood specifically. And this movie was brought up as a huge problem for uh, like the gay community. And I'll, I'll, I'll say the gay community in a, uh, in a way as a shorthand for LGBTQ plus community um, that this was reinforcing stereotypes of uh, conflating homosexuality with uh, the leather community, with S and M community, with, murderers um in ways that are obviously untrue uh to us now in 2021 but that were not well understood by the general straight public uh back in both 1980 when this movie came out or 79 when it was shot uh, and in 1999 when the celluloid closet came out but what i was pleasantly surprised about is that i watching it um as somebody who is queer but not 
uh, necessarily part of any like kink community and hasn't uh, engaged in any leatherdom or BDSM uh, stuff. Hi, mom, if you're listening, don't worry. And and what I found was that the depiction of these actual places felt non-judgmental in a way that when we were in these clubs, watching people dance, watching people have sex, watching people take poppers, my response was not cringing at what felt like uh, a judgment of the camera on these people and these bodies and the things that they're doing, but rather <laughs> just kind of getting to lean back and be like, this shit's cool, man. Oh, what a what a moment in time in, in underground Especially New York like, City. Yeah, like 1980, like right as the like the AIDS ap- epidemic was like beginning to like be known. It's like we get to see the snapshot of like what the gay community was like before that, before the fucking apocalypse that the Reagan administration uh, fomented. Yeah, and it's like. I, I, I was reading up a little bit uh, about the movie after after finishing it, and um, this was just at the moment when uh, HIV was being named, um, and it was like, it, yeah, it, it was such a not that anybody knew this at the time, but this is like the last gasp of a very specific moment in time for uh, for gay culture and for specifically a lot of the subcultures that are almost like chillingly. So, right. Like in the first scene of this movie, one of the cops says to another, uh, one of these days, the city is going to explode. And I was like, Holy shit. Like, wait, is I had to check the the time on this movie. Right. I was like, was this really made in 1980 or is it like an AIDS retrospective? Right. Yeah. It's like a super Joker moment. Like the whole city is just going to burn. Um, no, I just rewatched uh, the Taxi Driver, so that maybe that's more of a Taxi Driver uh, line. And in this movie, is, shares a lot of things when it comes to uh, depictions of the city, especially visually speaking. Um, but yeah, let's. Let, I mean, we'll we'll be able to get into other things. But those are those are kind of my my top line top line thoughts. Um, so one thing that Ben said that I really uh, appreciate is the. Um, the depiction of the BDSM leather communities here. Um, and I, I wonder, you had said that the straight audiences of this movie conflated it because they didn't fully understand it. Um, I think that's a really valid and, and good point. Um, I just like, I'm, I'm not trying to defend this movie from, from like a straw man or anything. Right. But like, it's, it's interesting to think about how this movie could have made the leather community more palatable or explained it better. Right. Because like, I feel like maybe, and maybe I was being too generous, but like I gained a, a like an understanding of um, the BDSM and, and leatherdom community being depicted here um, pretty clearly just based on the framing. Like you had said, the sort of like um, expressive and like, positive and excited atmosphere that the movie goes out of its way to portray, especially the effect it has on its main character. Um, but I wonder if, if people who didn't understand saw it as a conflation, right? Because like to me, and I'm not going to soapbox too much, but like the whole idea of like BDSM uh, and S and M culture is actually that like, it's, it's like deeply um, like, controlled and it's deeply communicative right like above and beyond even uh normal uh sexual relationships where like it is a willing exchange of power and of vulnerability um this movie seems to be suggesting that that form of specific attraction is 
well, real and valid, it is socially determinant, which I don't think is a problematic statement to make. I think it's it's easy to see and to say that the reason why um, people might come to be attracted to the idea of an SNM culture is a sort of reclamation of power and identity and validation that has been deprived of them. And you can see how then um, the BDSM community and the way that it intersects with with the queer community and with marginalized communities in general makes sense and why people might want to be interested in exchanging power um, either to feel powerful or to relinquish uh, their power and feel vulnerable in safe ways, especially when they are made to be uh, made vulnerable in unsafe ways, which the very first scene of this movie depicts very clearly. Um, and that made this killer like a specific kind of transgression in that he was not only invading these spaces, but he was taking advantage of something that was supposed to be vulnerable and really perverting it, right? Which which intersects well with the perversions that we see within his own psyche and then later on in the, the psyche of the police state. So that's what I say when I say it's nuanced, right? Like I think that that this this movie is portraying what is a positive community positively while depicting how it could be exploited because of a lack of protections and resources afforded to it. And I think that all of those things can live together really clearly and really well. So I guess that's my sort of take. And I think that 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 remind what you had said, Ben reminded me of that, right? And like the idea that we can portray this positively while depicting how it makes uh, its victims vulnerable, while also depicting that the reason why its victims are vulnerable are not actually the fault of the community itself so much as the way the community is treated and marginalized by the systems that um, perhaps perpetuate both the need for the community and the violence that um, is leveled against it in the first place. Yeah, a lot there. Um, I wanted to lock on to uh, what you said about sort of the um, the reclamation of power, the validation and uh, identity that was denied these communities, uh, how S&M is an expression of that and is a like a, a, a harnessing of that. I think that is <laughs> – well, when, what – Jesus. Uh, when I think about sort of negative re- response to this movie, and I'm, I'm really interested in what uh, – Ben thinks of this too. Um, when I think about negative response to this movie, because I wasn't as aware of it, I knew that it was considered controversial. I did not know that it was seen that it was like a source of such, um, you know, in itself, like controversy and violence. Uh, but just like the fact that it is portraying a culture that is necessarily a, a an expression of counterculture, you know, like it is a, a response to a quote unquote traditional quote unquote American values of you know, um, po- the post-war age of, and it's very uh, foundation, right? Like, like right, the exactly. S and M culture oh. is based on a, um, alternative expression of those values exactly. like ex- explicitly. And, right. And, and, and that's where the, you know, the quotes come from scare quotes, traditional, uh, and you know, the, the, uh, you know, the sexual liberation of the 1960s, the, you know, economic motion of the seventies. And that all kind of like adds up to this. And it's, again, that that's for the, it is still wild to think about how this movie was just just before the cusp of the AIDS epidemic in America was because it is like that it's you know charting charting history. There was something that happened, uh, you know, ten years before this movie. There was something that happened ten years before that. Both of which influenced this specific space and time. And then there was something just a few years after this depiction that would influence it. You know, the rest of the world forever. Uh, but yeah, that's when I think of the negative reception to this movie. I think it is. 
um, sort of like you were both saying, it is a latching on of a very heteronormative mindset to a very not heteronormative, uh, like community and culture rather than a, you know, a direct indictment, I guess, of, of those communities as a negative or as something deserving of a paranoid, uh, worldview. You know, I, I call this movie paranoid before. I think it's just because we're looking at it through a cop's eyes. I, I guess I'm going a little bit off track, but Ben, it sounded like, or it seemed based on the fact that your Zancaster hand is up, uh, that you might've had something to say off of what Harry was, was going at as well. Yeah. Um, and so uh, like a couple of things. So, um, one of the things that, that jumped out at me in, in the ways that we're discussing this is that like, uh, we take it as, uh, we take it for granted that, um, an SNM community is not by its very nature immoral which was probably right. not very right. co- like a, a common way of thinking at the time. Um, and on top of that, like homosexuality, just like we, yeah. we all take it for granted that like uh, just even just like removing the, like all of the context of the scenes of just gay men dancing in a club and there's big thumping house music and people are sweating and dancing and wearing jeans uh like or denim and leather and they're kissing and it's like this is all things that are uh like feel and look to us like expressions of joy because they are um but that would have been read by not everybody but a lot of people very differently at the time which is also kind of what the movie's about in fact right right and and that like so i think it's uh i mean it's obviously a good thing that like um like a majority straight audience can watch this and, and feel and interpret those scenes differently, but that there's um, a, a, I think there was for a lot of people an assumption that just by um, existing in the ways that these communities were existing and by being antithetical to traditional uh, sexual sexual roles and gender roles and um, you, that they were doing something wrong and shameful and um, and scary as a, as a reason for that. So I think like some of the best to me, some of the best scenes were when the camera just lingered in these clubs. And sometimes it was like what felt like just a gay club and those were underground by by their nature and by necessity. And then other times it was a leather club, which was a little more, uh, I, I would suppose, intense, and it had a specific look. But even those, like not not all of the clubs that were shown, and not all the scenes and the people that they showed in those places were engaging in like um, BDSM. A lot of them were just like dressing a certain way, having sex in public, making out, and and dancing, and and then uh, it, that progression until. Un- up until um, you were getting depictions of like what I was going to say, traditional S and M LOL um, <laughs> more ex- explicit and um, violent, like S and M sexual acts in public with other people and that kind of cruising the, what felt like uh, from a 2021 perspective might've been like a ramp up into more and more sexual deviancy. The, the, I think a lot of, uh, especially straight people in 1979 and 1980 would have seen all of these are like, yes, these are not necessarily all equal, but these are all deviant. 
period. Mm -hmm. And just like different variations of that deviancy. And I think that is just a, uh, a, a, a bigger reason why these, um, like subgroups and sexual crowds like flocked together in these places was not just that, um, you know, SNM BDSM as like this interesting way of exchanging power in a sexual dynamic. And that can be an escape from an oppressive society. I, I do think that's a completely legitimate way to read the scene um, and to, to read the relationships, but you know, BDSM has always and will continue to exist outside of the gaze. Um, and, but at the time, like a lot of reasons that these were, these clubs were um, that kind of mixed crowd that, that really leaned homosexual is because like, well, these are the queers. And I mean that in just the most like basic sense of the, of the word, like these are the people that society has deemed deviant. And so they, they push underground and they like exist both like overlapping, but also just alongside each other. It was right. You know, it's it's like yeah. the nice. It's it's both the like the beautiful and also the like tragic thing about like intersectional um, systems of uh, both community and oppression. Right? Is that like when different groups of people are similarly oppressed by society, they tend to find each other through their shared struggles. And so like that, that is why the the queer community diverse as it is sort of fits under that banner of queerness in the first place. Right. Because literally that's like the definition of queer is like strange, right. Is different. Um, even though like that can encompass so many different ideas of what that means. Right. Yeah. The, the, the T in the uh, acronym, B, uh, LGBTQ, like there is, uh, depending on your perspective, like being transgender or transsexual has, you know, could have little to do with like whom you are attracted to and what that is like, how that influences your sexual orientation. But it feels like and has been, you know, thankfully for the most part, at least in this country, like a natural pairing and uh, a very fruitful one when it comes to fighting for rights, because like, uh, they are joined in, or we are joined in our like otherness, our queerness. Um, yeah. Uh, so anyway, we're, we're, we're losing the plot a little bit. Um, so to bring it back to the movie, I think, um, so a, a major part of the protests against this movie weren't just after it came out and people saw what the movie was and then reacted to it. But there were, um, you know, gay rights groups in New York City who were interrupting the filming, who were putting mirrors on top of buildings and shining it at the camera so they would ruin the shots and banging pots and pans. Which is so badass. That, if right, maybe, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, we we have to both take into account that like, oh, the reason that the um, ADR sucks so much in this movie and is very obvious is because they had to record so much of the dialogue with uh, through ADR because there were people oh, banging pots and pans out windows just off screen. And it, it's like, that is both, um, y y you know, that, that is what it is for, for better and worse. Um, but the, so I, I will say both like the, given that that is something that I knew about the movie when I was going in, seeing what was actually depicted, I was pleasantly surprised, but at the same time, who knows what the movie would have been like, had there not been pressure to, uh, like make this depiction of a specific subculture um, respectful of that subculture. 
just yeah, that really, out. really great context and points there. Um, I also wonder if like my reading of this film is sort of nuanced in the sense that like, I think that the character arc is sort of about, in fact, the imposition of straight sexuality, like onto like, basically this is a character who, who misunderstands the nature of his um, transformation and uh, reacts to it so violently in such a like straight heteronormative way that he eventually becomes uh, spoilers, a murderer, at least in my opinion, I know that it's sort of ambiguous. Um, Maybe. Right. Um, But, and, and so you can sort of see how, like, like I think some of the criticisms about the character, Al Pacino's character himself, was that there was this idea that by being exposed to this community, he was coming to, to understand an attraction to violence, which was making him into this. Um, my reading of all of that is actually that, like, he was coming to understand why he likes being a cop in the first place. Um, and that, in fact, like, if if anything, this movie is a very st- strong, full-throated indictment of, of like cop culture and of in general, like straight power dynamics, like fully stated. Um, this is, this is a character who like, who thinks that the S and M has this appeal because of maybe queerness. And he, uh, dislikes that when in fact he is attracted to violence in a similar sort of regressive way that the killer himself is, which is how we get that final scene where he basically recreates the initial killings on the killer. And then again, maybe uh, goes on to do even more and sort of assumes the mantle of the killer. Um, All of that is, is in my mind, like a um, perversion of what is depicted as a positive culture in this movie, but that is a nuanced portrayal, right? Like that, that is a, that is um, pointedly mixing up and intertwining like cop um, oppression, politics and attractions with the sort of like misunderstanding and misapprehension of what, SNM and queer culture is mm-hmm. um, to create this character. Um, so you can, I maybe kind of see how, especially for an audience that, as Ben pointed out, was already predisposed to see all of this as sort of um, leering and homophobic in the first place. Um, you can see how it, how it would be sort of titillating and not in a good way. Right. I and it sort of t- for me comes to a head in the scene where. Um, Al Pacino, I'm forgetting his, his character's name is John Forbes, but uh, I forget his actual, or sorry, his, his cover name is John Forbes. Steve his Burns, which is very yeah, funny. Burns. What a nerdy name. Um, he, where, where he stumbles into uh, one of the, um, one of the gay bars or I guess S and M clubs. And literally is surrounded by people, in, by men in police uniforms uh, and just does not know what to do. And is, you know, completely out of his element in the most ironic way possible, right? That sort of uh, ambiguity, that sort of mixed messaging and muddling, I think is made text in that scene, particularly Cody. Uh, Yeah. I'm really glad you brought that up. That was, um, and I guess like Harry spelling that out, I'm glad you characterized it that way. I, while watching, I was trying to, I guess, figure out the meaning of, or like what exactly the contribution was of a scene in which uh, Steve Burns and um, Nancy Gates, the Karen Allen character, they're together, they're being intimate. And this was, I think, immediately after that scene at 
precinct night as as they called it it was like while um you know while they were the scene where the scene where he tries to uh as one of the critics on wikipedia says freak the gay away quote unquote oh baby um yeah i i i can't top that but uh yeah i like a scene in which they like the two of them are having like heterosexual intimacy there is that like audio being piped in as he's thinking about precinct night the the sort of i guess that sort of conflation of attraction and violence that's that's going on and i maybe it was just because it was dropped halfway through the movie and then it was not as like subtext as text like showcased in that visceral of a way again um but i guess like one other like type of scene that plays into that discussion is the sort of um performative nature of like uh, sexuality if that's not too extreme to say but also like how steve burns perceives that performance and as as it's been said like his kind of misconstruing of that yes. and like conflation of that the like the focus on bodies the focus on uh like muscle um there's at least one scene of him working out in front of a mirror and it's i, I guess upon rewatch it's sort of thinking like what does he hope to gain by working out and staring at himself in front of a mirror? You know, he he's While like screaming. He's, yes, yes, right, right. What is he screaming about? Yeah, um, that's uh, that's such an an interesting point. Um, yeah, I'm I'm glad that we got to that, uh, Ben. Um, yeah, the the relationship with the uh, the woman um, that Steve Forbes. No, wait, what's his name? Steve Rogers, right. Al Pacino. Has Steve Rogers, right? That's right. Uh, yeah. Um, is uh, is like very weird and feels like unnecessary and muddling. And I was surprised to read afterward that the book that this is based on, um, there is no girlfriend character that um, for for him to. Oh, very interesting. Visual, like or I suppose, like make visual the uh, issues that he's that the cop is right. having. Um, processing everything and, and and internalizing some parts of it, but the yeah the like feeling of images like disturbing images getting caught in somebody's mind and preventing them from having a normal relationship or a normal sexual relationship feels like a pretty interesting and valid thing to explore in a movie with this much violence. And especially it, it's like a classic trope of uh, the cop who's chasing after a killer, you know, getting so inside their head that they are questioning their own sanity and their own. Really good point. However, <laughs> it seems like the, in, in one of the moments that this felt like uh, a little muddled in the in its depiction, like the things that are flashing in um, Steve Rogers head are while he's trying to have sex with this woman is not the severed body parts or the like stabbings but rather just like men kissing men mustaches giving blowjobs to penises and there's there's leathers and one of the club the clubs was called a cock ring like my god just like uh, kind of you know uh pearl clutching um in ways that are like okay of all the things in this movie that are disturbing and like would (laughs) would create like nightmares for people it's like it is both um unfortunate and telling that like one of the go-tos was like 
oh yeah, just show some of those lingering shots of all of those buff dudes fucking in the basement of a club. Um, yeah, it was just like, I, it, it felt unnecessary. It felt like one of the few, not few moments. Um, it felt one of the moments in the movie where it was dated and not in a like an interesting, pleasant way that the whole movie is obviously very set in a specific place in time, but rather like, mm, I can see, I can feel the ways that the um, people working behind the camera are like limited in their understanding and empathy and interest in the subculture that they are depicting. That's a really interesting point. And I think I agree um, with the possible, again, possible exception that like I, and maybe I'm giving the movie too much credit here, but like I read the flashing of images of not the severed body parts um, or the violence, but the, the men themselves in the mind of our main character which is which are also similar to the the flashing of the murders themselves that that flash through the mind of the killer when he uh, uh, commits more murders. Um, in my mind, that is because um, Steve Burns' character is conflating violence and through a misunderstanding of the S and M community, not unlike the killer himself is, and not unlike the audience of this movie did, which is kind of wild to think about. Right. But like this movie is sort of resting on this idea that these men are through their own repression and through their own anger at their inability to express themselves, their inability to accept different parts of themselves, um, in the killer's case, his, his homosexuality, maybe in Al Pacino's character's case, his homosexuality or his attraction to violence and the fact that he's, he's, a um, an oppressive person by nature. Um, they are conflating those with the idea of S and M that isn't actually true. Right. So like, um, this is, this is a misapprehension that, that causes Al Pacino's character to end up where he ends up just like the, um, the main character, uh, in fact, or not the main character, the the killer, um, he ends up exploiting and um, uh, perverting this S and M community as a uh, means of um, covering his murders uh, because of his own lack of acceptance of himself. Right? He has these visions of his, and this is where the movie gets pretty Hollywoody, right? But he has these visions of his dead father. Um, who didn't accept his homosexuality um, and he is trying to prove to his father that he's worthy of love and praise by killing gay men um, in this context to sort of demonstrate that he has mastery over himself um, because his dad rejected him um, out of hand for his own sexuality. Um, this is similar to where Al Pacino ends up at the end of the movie, at least on my reading, right? Where like these these are men who are who are leveraging S and M against itself in order to perpetuate what is actually a much more conventional, um, heteronormative, oppressive uh, power dynamic, wherein the person, in order to master themselves, has to destroy something else, right? Um, go ahead, Ben. I think all of the the interpretations you have are are valid ways to read the movie. I think I um I just don't have exactly the same ones. And one of the the points there is that like um I think if the main character, the main antagonist, the lead actor and the people behind the camera as well as a good portion of the audience are all reading in something in a certain way that we in the future can now appreciate was misunderstood 
uh, I, I, I don't think we can quite write that off as like, ah, yes, they, they made a mistake, but it's like, no, right. they, they, they legitimately believed true. these things as they were making the movie. And like a, uh, an Al Pacino quote that I will bring up when he was asked about it later was, uh, he was like talking about the, so the community of like just leather, um, and said that leather bars were quote, just a fragment of the gay community, the same way the mafia is a fragment of Italian American life. Um, <laughs> oh boy which like is I, I so understand what he's going for there and as the the star of literally the most important mafia movie ever made or maybe the most two important mafia, mafia movies ever made um and he being italian-american himself and there being criticism around there that like oh this is stereotyping and this is bad for the community overall and his in his mind just saying like oh no no like this is part of a larger whole sure that it's an interesting backdrop in order to like get into these uh, interesting personal conflicts and like, and murder mysteries here. Um, but at the same time, like the baseline understanding of the difference between the Italian mafia and the Italian American community overall, like, well, one of those really is committing murders and it is like, it is a criminal organization like by design and by its nature, as opposed to like, you know, leather or even like more extremely like BDSM, like those are, we understand now not inherently immoral and not even like contributing to a possible violence or a possible immorality. Right, exactly. In, in fact, the opposite of those things, but you're saying that he didn't, which right. is probably yeah, so it's, Right. And it, it just seems like the movie is under the assumption that like, you can be gay, you can be, you know, what's his name? The the roommate. Um, and that's that seems like kind of okay, Ted Bailey. That like this character is likable and funny and unsurprisingly, you know, blonde and white, um, and well mannered. And like there there does not seem to be any inherent demonization of that gay character for being gay, but he is also a foil to all of these men who are doing the mm-hmm. cruising. That and is true, like, yep. And and so, like, I, one of the things I really liked about watching this movie was that I could just sit back and watch all of these, like, uh, you know, dark, gorgeous, pulsing nightclub scenes and feel like, yo, this fucking rocks. But at the same time, like, uh, that is only because the, I, I can have that separation. And like, if I'm bringing the baggage of assuming that, like, even if even if I'm a well-meaning straight in uh, in 1980, and I'm thinking to myself, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Not all gay people are into this freaky leather stuff." Um, you know, that's still like that. It, it's still missing the mark. It um, is, yeah, a hundred percent. Because because it's still it's still saying that fundamentally the S and M subculture is um, dangerous or is immoral. Right, or will lead to you getting either right. knifing somebody in a park or being knifed in a park. Right. I think, obviously, like like you're saying, I think uh, the Ted character is a bit of a double-edged sword. Like, on the one hand, he's he's uh, a symbol of the separation of, of the S&M communities, from, of the S&M community from, from the greater concept, I guess, of homosexuality, like Harry was saying in his top-level thoughts. Uh, and on the other hand, like, again, he's, you know, uh, he's supposed to be the innocent version of that, you know, like, and I don't know that the movie does enough um, on at least explicitly or, or, or as part of text to make that separation, to make it clear that 
we are portraying these two things at you know by the reality of them but by necessity the audience is going to stratify them like oh ted is a you know quote unquote normal gay person where the rest of the communities in this movie the snm communities depicted are like the deviant quote unquote and you know again scare quotes that's a very around. interesting interpretation that i think is is really um i don't valid. i don't think i don't think it's i don't think it's quite accurate i don't think that the movie is again i think that the way that it weaves um ambiguity throughout the film and the fact that there are uh, you know, like near the end of the movie, it is suspected that maybe Greg, James Remar's character, is the one to have killed Ted. It is suggested maybe that Al Pacino himself did. Maybe the kill, the real killer is still on the loose because there were like three different characters, three different actors who played the, you know, the titular killer in this movie. I think that that is how very conceptually, but not like rising to the top of this, like the surface of the movie. I think that's how it addresses that. I don't think that it really like... I see why it would have gone uh, uh, like in the, in the greater controversy and questions around this movie at its release. I see why that necessarily would have been hidden, but I do think with the benefit of hindsight, it's a lot easier to note. Okay. Especially with, you know, reasonable 2021 mindset, it's easier to see like, okay, Ted is, you know, the, is, is that double-edged sword and I'm choosing to see one edge of it as how he's being used. And then the movie is making up for the slack of, you know, the other edge about how he could be seen as like the angelic, innocent version of uh, a thing and the other as a demonized version. I think that that's how it skirts. That is, is with the ambiguity of, you know, the lethality of, of, of the, of the killer with the, um, you know, sort of larger social threat to both communities that exist. Uh, I think that is, you know, it's again, it's not a very clear line, but I think it's there. So there is a line, though, that Ted has that that sort of creates a bridge that does a lot of lifting for me in, in my reading, I guess, which is when he's talking about the former uh, gay guy who, who used to live next to them that Ted was maybe involved with. And he says that that guy used to get so mad and he didn't know what would set him off. But how he responded to that anger was he would check in at baths and, quote, uh, blow a dozen dudes, unquote. Right. And so like and Ted says, I'm not quite there, but I know what made him feel that way. Right. And, and to me, that is sort of the movie's ethic on um, expressions of uh, frustration with marginalization and oppression and how that can can manifest in the form of uh, sexuality and and um, expressing yourself through your sexuality. And like the fact that Ted understood that and that Al Pacino's character didn't. Right. Like, I think that is the fundamental line that's being drawn between queer communities and straight or cop communities is that. When someone like Ted or gets into um, the S&M community, what happens is they are able to utilize it properly, right? Where they are able to use their their pent-up frustration at being marginalized, at being oppressed, at anger with themselves and with their communities in this constructive, creative, and even loving way, right? Where they can either relinquish control in defined circumstances or they can take control again in defined circumstances um, to, to sort of uplift and validate one another. What happens when someone who is unwilling to accept that part of themselves, accept where that frustration with themselves come from, what happens then is they take it out on other people, right? So when Al Pacino, who, who is unwilling to deal with his latent homosexuality, or the killer who is unwilling to deal with his latent homosexuality, or cops who are unwilling to deal with their anger at themselves, uh, when they come up against this idea of 
exchange of power, they pervert it and use it against other people, which is why, again, in my reading, like, I think in my reading of this movie, Al Pacino 100% killed Ted. I think he's trying to blame it on James Remar's character. I think that's what the movie is saying the the world is doing to gay communities writ large. Is it saying like, hey, like, like the gay community didn't kill these these people. Cops did. And then they blamed it on the gay community because they couldn't accept or because it was an easy way for them to do that. And like there's an interesting meta uh, response that this movie has to criticisms, right? Which is it's saying that like, maybe you're blaming like this violence on the gay community when actually it came from our community. Like the call was coming from inside the house. And I found that extremely compelling, right? Like the idea that it's saying that, Hey, actually like the reason why this guy is stabbing uh, gay people to death, the reason why violence continues to foment within these communities is because it's imposed from outside, not because it's coming from inside there. And that actually it's something that is our responsibility to take on. Um, but again, that, that is a very contemporaneous reading. Um, that is a reading that gives uh, Friedkin et al. a lot of credit in understanding what the S&M community is. Um, I think that the movie almost makes it but I don't think it quite gets there um, because of everything that you've been saying, I think. Yeah. And I like my, my response is um, let me, I'll, I'll put it a different way instead of just repeating that, like that's a valid interpretation, but mine is slightly different. I don't think that this movie was trying to say that, but I think that this movie um, like is ripe for reinterpretation and just kind of disregarding whatever um, Friedkin at all was trying to say with their cop characters, with that ambiguous ending, with the the potential or seeming motive of the killer being like internalized homophobia rather than anything, um, you know, anything to do with like homosexuality in general. Um, but I, I think that this movie is just like, is so great for approaching at whatever terms you are willing to bring to it in the moment. For and for all of us, I think that means that like this movie is probably significantly more enjoyable than it would have been to watch in 1999 when like the celluloid closet was made and this movie was the focus of sharp criticism by really you know thoughtful and uh, like leading gay figures in in film and in Hollywood. Um, and so like I think that uh, like I, I read certain scenes in in slightly different ways, but I, like rather than saying like no, that's not what it means, I like I I feels like cool, yeah, like this movie absolutely is like um, open and non or not not non committal, non judgmental enough that like uh, it's it you can bring what you want to it and see it in that way, and I like came to this movie really not sure of how I was going to feel. Um, but like my, my friends who are queer who have watched this movie and either talked to me about it or, or just talked about it, like on social media had like really positive experiences with it. And I, I so understand that now because it's like, Oh yeah, you can, you can read this movie in the way you want to read it. And it is like, not only is that not invalid, it feels like the preferred way of of approaching a text like this and almost built in right like i mean that ambiguous ending is ambiguous for a reason right and yeah and uh, i will i will just throw this out there and saying 
in my reading of the movie, which uh, is verging on just like in my head canon of this piece. Well, I mean, that's uh, what I just said, right? No, right. Yeah, but the like the the all of the like coffee dates and the meat cute that Al Pacino and Don Scar- uh, Scardino had like, oh no, yeah, they they love each other. Al Pacino was not about to murder this man, but uh, the other boyfriend who was super jealous of Al Pacino coming in and trying to steal his man, he did murder him in a lover's quarrel, um, which like sure. is not. It, I, I'm not even saying that this is like the best interpretation or the one with the most. Um, intent or not intent behind it uh most evidence to back it up but rather just like that feels like a perfectly valid way of interpreting the uh the actions of the characters and that's the one that like makes me happy and that's the one that like feels right for my viewing of the movie and there's just a lot of different like um parts of the movie that you can bring that attitude toward and suddenly feel like these depictions of the gay clubs that would have uh cr- like caused pearl clutching and revulsion and disgust by audiences in 1980 are instead just like really cool or really sexy or really like not sexy enough like i you know uh, i'm sure that like we are all uh, sad that the director's cut of this movie that had 40 additional minutes of mainly graphic sex scenes uh, has been lost forever um because of just like the studio was the one who had all of that footage and didn't keep it at some point I'm sure we're all sad that that's lost forever for a number of reasons. But one of them is just like, oh man, this, uh, like, how great would it have been just to have that depiction saved on celluloid for, uh, you know, uh, like all time going forward? Um, yeah, Jason, sorry, you've been, you've been trying to say stuff and I've been not no. letting you. <laughs> no, not at all. It's, it's really like, uh, sort of springboarding from, from where you're at. I really like that you brought up, uh, well, just to like frame these thoughts, the, the movie does at once seem it's clearly like very much of its time and of its place and depicting that time and place. But at the same time, it feels very future focused, right? Like this is something that will stand as a, as an element of conversation, as a piece of conversation for years to come. And, and here we yeah. are, you know, it celebrated its what 39th anniversary this year. And it's, and we're still talking Happy about birthday. it, finding different ways to talk about it as the Wait, no, it's 40, 41st. Sorry. 41st, 41st? oh my god is that yeah is that it's it? 2021 now dude oh, oh my god shit. i keep looking at the calendar expecting it to be 2019 and then uh, a different oh my god jumps out at me and it's it's very <laughs> oh my god that's the first time that's happened um but i really like uh how how you uh characterized i, I watched this movie with my roommate seth um previous podcast ho- or guest uh seth zarati and he when Al Pacino gets back from one of his final outings for one of his final cruises uh, and he greets James Remar's character, uh, Greg at Ted's apartment for the first time, um, Seth was like, why did he go to Ted's? Like, why, why did he even, yeah, dude, why but, did but, he do but, that? But yeah, that's, that's like, it's not exactly. And it's like Ben was saying, it's because he, 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 he was in love with the guy. Like, He's in he, love with Ted. He, he, he like sort of came to know this person through regular conversation and by, you know, living near him. And he had developed a genuine affinity of gen- a genuine love for this person. So I think that almost works. I don't know. I don't think that serves. I'm, I'm of Harry's mind where Al Pacino, Al Pacino looked me in the eyes at the end of this movie and bro, said, like I did the way it, bro, he's so sensually like... rubbing his neck after he cuts himself shaving. And then his girlfriend is putting on his leather dom kit, which is an exact replica of the killers. 
which uh, this better not awaken anything in me. I, I mean, I say that, but Karen Allen, it better awaken <laughs> something in you. And I'm here as soon as you make that realization. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I love how this movie did that, where it opened up enough of a space. And it's of course a privileged position, right? Because I'm thinking about people in 1980, uh, you know, various communities coming out to protest the film and being right in that, you know, being right in that attitude and having different uh, perceptions of it through time. But the fact that it is open to that much, I don't even say interpretation, but that room that it creates, I, I mentioned the ambiguity before. Um, I wanted to pivot one final time before I'm considering myself done. Uh, Harry, excuse me, Cody and Ben both brought up in their intros um, flow, sort of the movement of this movie and uh, you know how long it sits in some spots and then sort of the pacing, how it moves very quickly that the, the scene where um, Al Pacino is arrested in a, in a, uh, a bust gone wrong uh, where he thinks that he's captured the killer and then just a man, uh, in uh, in in a um, G string with a cowboy hat on, just beats the holy shit. shit that is so funny. That scene is I, so I funny. I loved that scene, but it was just like I'm, I'm okay. still perplexed trying to figure that scene. Out. <laughs> it's so good, man. Thought, and the, I thought the, it was, the kid goes, "Who is that guy?" <laughs> I thought for certain it was going to turn into like then it would pan back to the guy in the cowboy hat, and then he was just like a perfectly normally clothed, plain clothes officer, and then it would be like, oh. Well, that was in his head. It's it's kind of getting to him. I thought it was going to go that route, but it really like lent fully. No, the it. cops just have a giant black cowboy who apparently brutalizes uh, <laughs> their um, interrogates. It's it's such a strange, but yeah, like and that that feels like such a a, a similar piece of open to reinterpretation, mm-hmm. but like. At the time, that was really leaning right. into some uh, some racial stereotypes, yeah. racial even, like animus that is being brought by the audience that is mm-hmm. no longer, you know, uh, to some degree there now. And so it's it can now be a scene where we go like, that's so funny and that's really right. interesting. But <laughs> rather, it's like it's like, oh yeah, how do you how do you make a an, a, a a slap across the face even more? powerful and emasculating for mm-hmm. the people who are being inter- interrogated like oh we'll make it a black guy oh we'll make it and a black a gay, guy right. who's naked. gay black guy yeah right, exactly and you know and like you say even today it is easy to like when that first happened i was i was left wondering is this like what is this doing like by the end of the scene it's clearly happened the plot has moved but like why were these choices made to do it this way and even that's even still that that's questioning like and i can't imagine the the 41 years ago what that sort of perception must have been like but um like that was all to say the the, the way that that scene in particular just is a standout element of where the plot moves and how quickly it moves and how like okay like on occasion it throws you completely for a loop um that's just like one of the standout ones for me i wanted to get cody's perception or excuse me uh read on like one how the movie's moving um and two specifically how that ambiguity of like I find myself tripped up multiple times. Is that the killer? It's a like shortish white guy with curly hair and a strong jaw and sunglasses. Several times I found myself like questioning 30 minutes ago in the movie what the guy looked like. And that like that creates a completely bizarre, you wouldn't know the reference, Ben, but sorcerer like perception of the movement of this plot and like what I had to think about in reference to the larger story. What how did that ambiguity impact the flow of this movie and like the mechanical movement of it? Wow. Uh, a lot of good stuff and a lot of thoughts. I will try to be um, uh, structured in my presentation of them. Yeah. Uh, starting with those like interrogation scenes, those are like the wildest and maybe best examples of what this movie does like super well in that it's, it's always moving. Somebody's always talking. We're always focused. We're always 
uh, in frame, you know, there's always, <laughs> you know, like, and that's, even if, even when it's not moving, it gives the, at least the illusion that it's moving, like without, I guess, thinking of uh, specifics, but yeah, like, like watching those, like the, the interrogation scene, I guess that we're referring to, I was, I had just enough time to think like, man, how many times has this guy been brought in to do just this so that the people being interrogated don't come out and like give this story to the public and they'll look at them like, uh, you're crazy. The police would never have a largely naked, uh, <laughs> like muscular black person slap you across the face. We're going to discredit everything you have to say from now on. Uh, I had just enough time to like think that. And then we moved on. Um, uh, it was great and hilarious. Um, but yeah, I mean like the, the film is like also really well shot and well composited. And like that also makes scenes in general go down more easily. I'm thinking mostly of, you know, as we, um, you know, I'm, I'm a tired little baby. And when I get into the third act of a movie, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, nap time or, or whatever the hell else I got going on. Um, not really, but you know, sometimes that was not really an issue with this movie, uh, in part because like we had great sequences, like the, um, kind of the final showdown between, um, Steve Burns and Stuart Richards, the, the exchanges of them looking out across like the the yard at each uh, at each other they're both in the frame but like looking at each other from different angles that sort of like mapping of them was really nice uh to look at um and I, like even the things that that uh excuse me didn't work i felt in the moment paid off later in ways that like made those moments even better to watch um the sort of adrness of like the killer's voice um having that separation of like this is their voice being so obviously brought in from an external microphone and then you know their their physical self and that coming together when we see Stuart Richards speaking words in that voice to uh to Al Pacino's character was like a nice uh satisfying bump at least for me um but I guess getting back to your point Jason about like the ambiguity I'm this is a very non-committal boring answer but I think I'm at my happiest with this movie when I'm thinking I, like I'm very content not knowing who is killing whom or like who is at fault. Um, the uh, like the, the last, the last uh, like handful of shots of the movie like are as much as they create confusion. Um, like I wanted to bask in that confusion. The sort of um, so we get Captain Edelson. You know everything's coming to to a head in um in ted bailey's apartment um the sort of bringing in of multiple different threads at once the sixth precinct cop is there uh for whatever reason and he's thinking about like oh wow i should have done something about like these injustices sooner and now this this uh this gay man is is dead at my feet um the sort of uh well i guess then just like jumping ahead to the um i want to say the very next shot of uh nancy gates trying on that cop costume this sort of like suggestion as as great of a, of a, a shot that is um and whatever that's uh, awakening in people here uh myself maybe included that like suggestion that anyone can don a costume that anybody can transform and can do it like really effortlessly like in the blink of an eye karen allen is wearing like the killer's stuff and like that, like as silly of a suggestion that is, like it does, I like how that sets up the shot of Pacino looking in the mirror, staring at himself, like considering whatever his performance is, and then looking ever so briefly at the camera. Like I, I love that type of uncertain, uncertainty and like gesturing at like 
you know, uh, a multitude, really just, you know, a couple of different options for however people want to interpret this movie. Um, so yeah, I don't know, maybe an unpopular, uh, unpopular opinion, but, uh, but fuck y'all. We, we all appreciate being fucked. We, you know, um, so I, I accept yeah, your, <laughs> I accept you, your, your non, non-committal answer there, Cody. Um, yeah, I, I, one of the things I'm just like jumping off of what you're saying with like Nancy wearing the uniform in the end is like, I, I like that because of how ambiguous it is. Like, obviously the most ambiguous part of the, um, ending is the, the staring at the camera by, by Mr. Al Pacino. But the, yeah, that kind of gesture of like this part of his life that he worked really hard to not get involved with his work and with this underground and with the murders is right there, putting it on and like making herself into one of the characters that he would have been seducing or pretend seducing um, when he was still undercover, which is great. And also just reminds me of uh, the very not first scene, but like the second scene in the movie where the, you know, uh, not dirty cops, um, Asshole cops, abusive cops. Is that an oxymoron? Not an oxymoron. I think just redundant. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. The the cops in the in the beginning who are harassing and then assaulting the um, transsexual prostitutes um, using the using the term that they would have been using then. Um, I remind, yeah, like that. I think that calls back to it of like, yeah, one hundred percent. Somebody somebody putting on um, this costume and engaging in. Uh, engaging in sexual acts where there is this like uh, play of power and there is this like feeling of, Oh, I'm, I'm doing something wrong. And the, and the cops at the beginning, like, you know, so very obviously would not have thought of themselves as gay or queer or even open to any sort of um, anything outside of the most traditional straight heterosexual, um, they consider activity. themselves above that, right? They can right. They consider themselves above that, even as they are, you know, uh, like forcing a a transsexual woman to go down on them. And it's like the that that type of um, I don't know that this is this is not a strong connection to the end of the movie, but rather like that was a callback to that scene, which I I found to be like so like rich for reinterpretation um upon a upon a, a viewing from from 2021 that i just had to shoehorn it in here yeah well i i'm glad you did because i was going to bring that up in connection to my sort of final hail, hail mary to make my point about my uh personal case for this movie and my interpretation of it so sorry to uh grab the microphone as i so often do but I, I yeah i interpret this as a uh, a coming of age story um for steve burns and he he sort of has two paths diverged in the yellow wood he can become a queer man or he can become a cop and he chooses to become a cop and in the process he learns what cops do with uh, queer people and with oppressed people in general, which is exactly what was portrayed at the beginning of the movie, right? Like those those cops use their power to dehumanize and further marginalize um, the the prostitutes that they harass. Um, and at the end of this movie, Steve Byrne finally literally makes his badge. He gets his um his detective uh um 
promotion that he's been working for. And how does he do it? Oh, he does it by um, killing his uh, would-be queer lover and um, blaming it on another guy uh, so that he can make a clean getaway from that life, uh, at least in my opinion. Like, he literally does the thing that the cops do, which is the same thing that the killer does, which is use queer people to further their own ends, right? Um, and so for me, all of that really sings with the ending where Al Pacino finally learns to do what cops do. I mean, there's that whole sequence with his mentor where he says, oh, you're going to meet people like this all the time. And it's not their fault. It's not your fault. It's just uh, the job. And Al Pacino's character says, I don't know if I can do the job. Guess what? Good news. By the end of the movie, he finds out he can do the job. That's what the job is doing, right? It's killing gay people. <laughs> Totally. And it's like, uh, I, I do think that there's a, a pretty firm indictment of the cops um, in this movie in a way that felt both like purposeful at its creation and, you know, ripe for, for us grabbing onto right. it as, as viewers now. And in some of the ways that like a lot of the ways I enjoyed the movie, I wouldn't go so far as to say like, yes, this was a purposeful, like part of its, of the movie's construction that I'm, I really love, but rather like, there is a lot of ambiguity or like distance that uh you know in the in these portrayals that I can now fill in with my own reading and my own feelings mm -hmm. um, yeah I, I think that's a really good measured response because like there is also the case that like maybe that ambiguity is there precisely for marks like me uh so that Friedkin can be like, oh yeah, no, that was totally right whatever you whatever you say that makes me look so good right right the 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 David Lynch approach <laughs> anyway hey. moving. Moving on. Wow, you would drop that right at the yeah, end. Yeah. yeah. If yeah, we go out on that, we've succeeded. Oh, we, 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 we can't go out without Cody's notice. I was about to say, I, if I can get Harry to oh, uh, wow. help me bring it in. Ben. Listen, I'm I'm here for the notice. The rest of it is just window dressing. <laughs> Aren't Every, everybody's here for the notice. It's so true. Um, and so without further ado, we'll get to the, the best segment of the show. The segment we like to call... <gasps> Cody's, Cody's notice. We ought to start getting the guests to help. Wait, us we do didn't. That. We uh, nobody told me this was a chorus. I would have joined in. Yeah, start. Take it from the top. Do we want to do that again? Sure. Uh, right, let's, okay. Let's get a third one more one. time. Uh, it's, so, it's after the breath in. Yeah. Uh, so it's the segment we like to call <gasps> Cody's, Cody's notice. notice. That was thank terribly you, I love it. Beautiful. Maybe maybe the best one yet. Um, but thank you, uh, fellas, for the beautiful introduction to the always non-committal Cody's Noties. Uh, this episode has brought the uh, the acclaimed actor Al Pacino onto the podcast figuratively uh, for the first time. Um, literally, um, will be sometime down the road, I'm sure. Uh, so I figured we may as well use this extra segment to uh, learn a, a bit more about him together. So without further ado, this is our pal Pacino. Um, for those not well-versed in the Our Pal Pacino procedures, we're going to jet around to some notable works and moments from Al Pacino's life and career uh, in the the form of questions, which I will provide, and uh, accompanying answers, which y'all will hopefully provide. Uh, and as I ask each question, if you think you know the correct answer, raise your little Zencaster hand. Uh, once I see uh, a hand raised, I'll stop the, uh, reading the question. I'll call on you, and if you're correct, you'll get a point. If you're not correct, we'll keep going until someone can get it right or until we've run out of guesses. Uh, each person will only get one guess per round, so use that guess wisely. Uh, and as a heads up, there will be five questions, so there's a pot potential for uh, a lot of parody here. Um, but with that, we can uh, we can go ahead and jump in. We don't have uh, Aaron Grossman, a, a previous Cody's Noties uh, champion, to uh, to bog down 
your totals today. So I expect to see no excuses uh, from any of you fellas. Um, okay, good. No excuses so far. We'll wait until the end. To, to when have it. I ever made an excuse, Cody? Come on. Hey, I, I see. I didn't call it anybody by name. Um, the fact that you chose to spoke up probably speaks volumes about something. Um, but we'll we'll tiptoe around that for now. Um, we'll start. Uh, we'll start by briefly bringing in Karen Allen with this with this first question. She, of course, played the character Nancy in Cruising. Uh, Karen Allen is perhaps best known for starring alongside Harrison Ford in, uh, well, I guess technically two Indiana Jones movies. Uh, reportedly, Pacino not was originally. I will not. I will not hear any Kingdom of the Crystal Skull slander. Uh, technically through gritted teeth look i'm not happy about it either buddy um reportedly pacino was originally offered to play a different famous character that eventually ford went on to portray which uh which role was this Uh, i saw harry's hand first and then ben's harry you get the first guess that would be han solo han solo uh al pacino was originally offered the role of han solo in star wars a new hope but he passed on it and uh instead harrison ford went on to uh to rule the world or i guess rule the galaxy um yeah what could have been that's actually striking like he has those really drugged out eyes in every single role i cannot imagine how the role of han solo would have looked different this uh this job of the hut's got a great ass (laughs) um i uh i just woke up I just woke up Chaco. Sorry, buddy. Oh, um, poor Chaco. Our, our true Sith Lord has yet to reveal himself. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, have a, we'll have a spoof pod um, uh, on the Patreon for, uh, for this rendition, I'm sure. Uh, but for now, we'll move on to number two. Uh, we're going to transition to a, a recent Pacino picture, The Irishman. Uh, Al Pacino's portrayal of Jimmy Hoffa in The Irishman earned him a Best Supporting Actor nomination at the Academy Awards. Who was the only other actor in The Irishman to receive an Oscar nomination for their performance? Uh, I saw Ben first and then Harry. That would be Mr. Joe Pesci. Mr. Joe Pesci is correct. Uh, yes, uh, he also got a supporting <laughs> actor nom for his uh, performance playing the character uh, Russell Bufalino. Um, it's been a year. Hopefully I said that <laughs> no. right. No, I Russell you're wrong. That's not the character's name, right? Fine, Russell Buffalino. <laughs> Is that? I don't know which one's funnier. Uh, except the mystery. Was, which, uh, next, which was, of course, really like just a. Uh, it was a nod to make up for the fact that he was snubbed for his performance in Home Alone. I think we can all agree on that's, that. That's right. I thought he was uh, Home he Alone for Home Alone, but was snubbed for Home Alone too. Yes. That's right. uh, and, my cousin Vinny, um, we'll throw that into the mix as well. It makes up for a lifetime of, of failed accolades. Um, fucking Academy. Uh, number three, uh, we, we've got a, a little fun fact here. Did you all know that the film Heat is, uh, as of this morning, number 123 on the Internet Movie Database, top 250? That, I know that's a list we're all paying close attention to uh, in our adult lives. Um, but that's far from the only film of Pacino's on that list. He's also got um, Godfather Parts 1 and 2, which were alluded to earlier this episode, I believe. Um, they're on there. There's also a film of his at number 107. What movie is it? Ben, you got the first guess. Uh I would probably say that that movie is Dog Day Afternoon. Dog Day Afternoon is an incredible guess. It is an incorrect one, however. I see Jason's hand. Jason, you get the next go at it. Um, Serpico? Serpico. Another good guess, um, but not the correct mm. one. Uh, 
unfortunately Harry has uh the last guess here. Hopefully like he Harry will uh, has the layup now. Well, he he well he's had all this time uh, to hopefully use his noodle and not his Google as he uh comes up with the correct answer here. Is it Scarface? It is indeed Scarface. <laughs> the Brian Damn De Palma you, film IMDb from 19 Rose. Yeah, IMD Bros indeed. <laughs> Um, we can, yeah, uh, that's a weird one to put there, but okay. Yeah, we can raise beef with them in another Patreon exclusive episode. Um, find us on Google. Uh, you won't find it actually. Uh, number four here, uh, Al Pacino is, uh, he's an Academy Award winner in case we're, we're unawares. Uh, and he's also the recipient of a few Razzie Awards. He won two Razzies for the same film in the year 2012. Uh, I'm going to stop reading because I see Ben's hand. Ben. If it's not Jack and Jill, I will be so disappointed. Uh, listen here, Big Daddy. Uh, you will not be disappointed, at least from this, because the uh, we're talking about Jack and Jill here, uh, where I believe Pacino plays a version of himself, and he makes a Dunkin' Donuts commercial. Have you guys seen the, the, the Dunkin' the Dunkachinos commercial? Because I, I watch, it, it, yeah. I watch it at Aaron least once a week. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I think I found that, uh, or rather, it found me during quarantine, but I couldn't tell you if that was last month or like 11 and a half months ago. Um, but it was somewhere in my recent memory that that commercial lives. I should take up weekly viewings. That seems like an enhancement on my life. Um, but we'll, you know, I'll, I'll self-actualize a little bit later off mic. Uh, for now, we've got the uh, the finale of our Pal Pacino, uh, and it ropes in some quotes. From the famed actor, uh, similar to what we did in Smart Alec and more recently, the long-awaited Wong Kar Wai game show. Uh, I'm going to read off three quotes allegedly uttered by the actor Al Pacino in real life. Two of these utterances will be for real, again, allegedly, and uh, one will not be for real. It will be not for real. Um, your task is to pick out the uh, the not for real one. So I'll read off the three quotes and leave it to each of you to pick out the imposter. Afterward, this is not a fastest finger question. I will just uh, go to each of you individually, alphabetically by first name after I read all three of them off. Um, so uh, we've got, uh, without nice. further delay, we've got, we've got quote A here. Oh, sorry, Ben, what was that? I was just celebrating the fact that my name begins with a B. Hey, that it does. That it does, Benjamin. Um, we've got uh, the first quote here. There are times when I have a temperament. Yes, my temperament is there but I hope I'm gentle. Yes, I think I am. That's the first quote. Second quote here. We know the best feeling in the world is the uh, is the one between the second and third martini. That was my deal. I just enjoyed who I became when I was drinking, so that was something hard to break. That was the second one. And the third and final quote. I'm the same now as I've always been. Sort of a spectator. People resent me for remaining myself when they think I should be acting like a superstar. So which of those three, uh, again, starting with Ben, which of those three is uh, the imposter quote? I don't know Al Pacino very well. I've only met him ne- never. So uh, but I, I think he's probably still a drinker. So I'm going to I'm going to guess that B is the the fake quote. B is the faker. All right, Harry, you next. Uh it seems B is a really good guess because B is, seems like it would be the easiest one to fake just with like numbers. And I know, I know what Cody's all about. Um, I think I'm going to go with um, A because I wonder if you changed the adjectives or something. So I'll go with A. Or something indeed. Uh, Jason, uh, we, we throw it to you now. Which is the imposter quote? I'm also going to go B because I get mad Stanley Tucci vibes from that quote. Instead of like Al Pacino vibes, 
Can't really explain it. Ooh. Thank you. I'll take uh, my answer. You just did. Yeah, I think you explained it well, actually. Um, the imposter is C. Uh, oh, nobody got a point there. Uh, this quote, this quote was tweaked uh, just a little bit. Um, here's the actual reading, and then I added a little bit more of the quote afterward because I think it was nice to include. Now, uh, I'm the same now as I've always been, sort of a recluse. Uh, people resent me for remaining myself when they think I should be acting like a superstar. I never wanted to be an actor, and I don't particularly enjoy it. Um, I, mm. uh, what I do enjoy, this is me speaking now, Cody. Uh, I do enjoy the fact that we're digging into the ideology and rationale behind uh, these uh, these answers, the, the sort of meta game that Harry. You got to play the game, you know. Yeah, yeah, we got to play the game, and we just played it. Um, we had a two way tie uh, for the top prize between uh, Ben and Harry. They both got two points apiece. Jason didn't make it on the board, um, but he is a solid presence and a good uh, all around fella uh, to have with us. On, so on the board, I have no regrets. You could have just said I lost. I can't. You, you edit the show. I don't think it's any of our responsibilities to take up that like that gloating Grossman energy in his absence. I, you know, I think we can just, you know, riff, uh, in our own ways. Uh, and that's, that was, that was me riffing. That was our pal Pacino also. So thank you for participating. Thank you, Cody, for coming up with that. We appreciate it. Um, I I brought some noties of my own. (gasps) Whoa. Hell right. (laughs) Yeah. No, no game shows, unfortunately. Um, but just some things that I, what one, one, fun fact that i thought was interesting um but before we get to that i really thought we were going to address this at some point potentially we should have addressed it uh at the beginning when we were just giving an overview of the plot um did it strike anyone else as hilarious that uh in this movie they bring in a rookie cop and it's the fresh-faced 40-year-old al pacino who looks <laughs> at least 60 yeah. in this role <sighs> They really try to make him look young, but uh, he's like the same age as like the the the, uh, the guy who's sending him into this underground. He's like, yeah, yeah yes. I really can, wears I can do years. it. Yeah, yeah. And like Al, Al Pacino as Serpico, really hot. Al Pacino as like the coach in uh, uh, Any Given Sunday is like old old guy, hot. And in this movie, he's just like not he's just like the the most i don't know his face looks flabby in a way that like mm, yes that looks aged why yeah, are yeah. you the rookie cop in this i think i need to see more pacino i can count probably on one hand the number of al pacino films i've seen and i think one of them is scarface imdb bro over here i, uh, I haven't, haven't seen the scarface um ben did you say you had more noties for us Yes. One thing I wanted to note. So I, uh, after watching this movie, I was so taken with the role of Ted Bailey and uh, the guy playing him, um, Don Scardino. I was like, oh, I must have seen him in something else because he's so charming and like, I don't know, fresh face that I was like, oh, he, I'm where else have I seen you? As it turns out, I haven't seen him in anything else because he's barely acted. However, he has gone on to a successful career in television directing including multiple episodes of Two Broke Girls, 30 Rock, and one of the best uh, sitcoms of the 2010s, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Holy wow. shit. Dang, that rules. Good for him. He's great in this movie, too. He, like, he really good. Won, he's won multiple Emmys, in fact, for his directing. Shit. Well. That's rad. 
that's almost like a that's like a beautiful sort of uh like logline on this his character too when his character dies so tragically before he gets to see his um play career take off at least the guy who played him got to go on yeah oh i'm sorry i should say uh, even even more uh, in line with his his perhaps his play productions he he won for being a producer on 30 rock uh not being not directing an individual episode although he did direct episodes as well always the man behind the scenes uh Ben, I got to say thank you so much for joining us for another episode. We hope it's not that long before our oh, next guest no, spot. I hope, I hope you. not either. Let's we, we we'll we'll take a look at the calendar and and figure something out. Yeah. Um. So where can people find you? Where should people uh, interact with you between now and then? Uh, in the meantime, people should uh, find me on Twitter. Once again, my handle is at it Benjamin Scott. Um, I am mainly just making a fool of myself and posting things about how government is bad. Um, and yeah, I'm, it's been a pleasure, gentlemen. I, I can't thank you enough for having me back. I can't thank you enough for being on. Um, before you leave, can you remember the last movie you logged on Letterboxd? I, I tried finding you to think if I was oh going God. to plug yeah, you there. I, 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 I update my Letterboxd infrequently, but if anyone 20. is listening to this and they want to keep up with, uh, the movies that I watch, uh, I will send you the direct link so you can view the google spreadsheet that i have been keeping since 2013 the last movie i watched before this particular movie was what was it um judas and the black messiah two thumbs up loved it two thumbs up great uh well we'll include that in the show notes if you're able to get it to me uh in the meantime everybody uh, you can follow our podcast at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon Cinema at Trilon Cinema and Trilon.org. Cruisin is playing is uh, excuse me at the Trilon uh, in, in real person, which is a weird weird way to say um, a thing that I that we haven't been able to do for a long time. But uh, you can get tickets to that showing at Trilon.org. You can get other merch like joining the Trilon Club and a water bottle that I think I lost and broke, and a lot of other cool stuff uh, from the Trilon. Uh, finding ways to support them while they have decreased capacity. Um, if you should happen to go to the Trilon, double mask, stay six feet away, at least from your fellow moviegoers. Uh, don't bring anything into the theater that's going to make you remove your mask, like food or water or any form of, uh, I guess, sustenance. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I lost that's my all you got to say. Yeah, I lost you my family. Um, you can uh, follow own, own, them. Own it, Jason. You, yeah, you I'm, are... I'm, I'm just going to lean into it. Guys, don't listen to our podcast. Don't go to the Trilon. I'm, I'm, I'm going off the rails. This is a pirate radio. Or, or, or if you're like me, you know, you, you've gotten your second vaccination shot, then keep your darn mask on, but go safely uh, patronize the, the Trilon. Hell yeah. 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 Definitely. Um, in the meantime, I am Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Uh, I've been Cody Narvison. I I still have my um, not broken Trilon water bottle. Not to to uh, flex too hard, um, but it's in it's in my cupboard. I look at it uh, anytime I open my cupboard, the single cupboard that I have in my apartment, uh, and I'm looking forward to when I can uh, use it again out in the world at the Trilon uh, with all you fine folks who are here talking and those uh, who might be listening as well. If you chose to listen, which would be we- great. Uh, Yes, we we know you're not uh, flexing too hard because you're not staring into a mirror and screaming. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, I know what I'll be doing as soon as I get off mic here. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Yeah, and while we're all doing long uh, goodbyes, wow, long goodbye. That's a great movie. Wow. Check that out. And Thanks, also, uh, 
<laughs> I was mostly talking about Jason, but you know. Um, wow. This movie is also available on uh, line in a couple of different places. If you haven't been vaccinated or don't feel comfortable going to the Trilon, I would advocate that you watch it on um, YouTube or some other alternative rental source other than Amazon Prime. Um, the Amazon strike is occurring as of this recording. I think it will be over by the time this is released. Uh, nonetheless, giving uh, Amazon as little business as possible is always a good uh, because they are an incredibly evil corporation that is actively destroying the earth and uh, making uh, life more difficult for workers here and everywhere. Um, so don't support them if you can avoid it. Um, I watched yeah, it I on will, YouTube. Yeah, I'll, I'll give a shout out uh, to Vudu, which is where I paid $4 to watch it uh, if you also don't want to be supporting Google. Or at the very least, of all of the places that it is available to rent uh, or to buy digitally, I think the only two that are specifically like movie rental services as opposed to some megacorp that also has a movie rental service as a part of it are Voodoo and Fandango now. So I would say go go for those. Give give money to the people who actually care about movies. Yeah, that's a really good point too. Like supporting Google is not great either. Um, yeah, uh, so maybe do that. Or you know, the best thing to do if you're vaccinated and feel comfortable and wear a mask is to see it at the Trilon. So thank you. Please do that. Um, I've been Harry. You can find me at Shtakiari. Uh, I think this is where I slide in. Uh, be prepared for the best accent attempt you've ever heard in your lives. <clears throat> Let's go. One day, this whole city's gonna explode. Used to be able to play stickball in the streets. Now look at these guys. Christ, what's happening? What's happening?